When asked several weeks ago if I would address the question of how should we treat those who become unfaithful? How should we treat someone who becomes unfaithful to the Lord? It's a good question. And it's a question of which there's much misunderstanding, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. So the question is, how do I reach out to them? When someone becomes unfaithful and I want to be of influence and try to help them return to the Lord, how do I reach out to them? What do I say to them? How do I approach them? How do I treat them? And how do I show that I care about them? I want to leave an impression upon them that I care about them. How do I do that without stepping over some boundaries that are found in the New Testament. And how can I make sure that I'm not encouraging them in their sin? I I want to be of influence. I want to have contact. But I don't want to leave the impression with them that I'm encouraging them in their sin. How do I do that? And the phrase of not keeping company, and we'll come back to that later, does that phrase, do not keep company, mean that I am to avoid them when I see them in public. That is, I am to shun them and go the other direction. Is that what that means? So let's talk this morning about this question that I've been asked to address, how to treat the unfaithful. How do you treat them? Let's begin by noticing that there are two extremes with reference to the concept of how you treat them, and neither one is in harmony with the scripture and neither one is productive. The one extreme says, treat them like nothing is wrong, the same as you did before. In other words, here is someone who is faithful. They're diligent in their service to the Lord. You had a close relationship with them. You spent time with them. You went to their house. They come to your house. You go out to eat together. You have Thanksgiving together. You have Christmas together. Whatever it is, you you spend a lot of time You go to the store together, you go shopping, whatever. You spend a lot of time with them. Some have the idea they've become unfaithful. If I'm ever going to have influence, treat them like I've always treated them, like nothing is wrong, and we still do all of those things. We still go to the movies together. We still go uh, to sporting events together. We still go out to eat together. They still come to my home. I go to their home as if nothing is wrong. That's how I have influence. The other extreme, on the other end of the spectrum, we treat them like they have some disease and we completely avoid them and ignore them. So that if I see them in public, I turn and go the other direction, lest I have any eye contact even with them, I treat them like they've got a disease. Those are two extremes that neither are found in the scriptures and neither harmonize with the scriptures, and yet both of those are common among brethren of how you treat those who become unfaithful. When discipline fails, and it often does, it often is because we as members of the body of Christ have disregarded some biblical instruction on how to treat those who are disciplined, like the cases we just mentioned. We go back and we treat them like nothing has changed. Well, that's ignoring the passages. Or we treat them like they have a disease, and that's also ignoring those passages. And so often when it fails, it's because we've disregarded. Let's not forget this principle. The purpose of discipline is to save the erring. We'll see that from 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment. So the question becomes, what can I do in harmony with God's will to somehow reach those who are erring? Because that's the purpose of discipline. 
That's the purpose of my action toward them, is I'm trying to bring them back to the Lord. So whatever pain it causes me or them, I'm trying to win them over to the cause of the Lord. That's the purpose of discipline. How we treat them after we have withdrawn from them can make a world of difference in whether they ever come back or not. Now you think about the two extremes we just mentioned. If I treat them like nothing has changed, they're not likely to come back. We'll give evidence from the scriptures on that. And if I treat them like they have some disease and I avoid them completely, I don't even talk to them. I don't want to even see them at all. They're not likely to come back. Now let's open our Bible, starting with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or chapter 5 rather. There are two primary passages I want us to address and our purpose is not to be exhausted in 1 Corinthians 5 or 2 Thessalonians 3. Those are studies to be reserved for other times. <clears throat> but because most in this audience are familiar with that, those two texts, I want to give a quick summary of those two texts because that's not the main part of our study. We're going to make some application from them. So let's go to two cases, the first being 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's just review 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I call this instructions for 1 Corinthians 5. We see a problem, we see the failure, and we see instructions in this text. What was the problem? Verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man should have his father's wife. What was the problem? There is a fornicator in their midst. It was well known. Well reported. It was a case of a man having his father's wife. Perhaps it was a case where his father had remarried a younger woman. So this wouldn't have been his mother, obviously. But his father marrying a younger woman, making her attractive to the son. And now he has his father's wife. He's committing fornication with her. And that's continuing on. That's not even heard among the Gentiles, such a case of fornication. Now, what's the failure here? Verse 2, they haven't dealt with it. The church has not dealt with the problem of fornication. Notice now at verse 2, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. They haven't addressed it as they should. They're puffed up. They've not mourning. They should have been shedding tears over his sin. They're not bothered by that at all, and they haven't dealt with him. So now verses 3 to 13 are the instructions of what they should do about that. And so verses 3 and 4, he said, this is in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, this is a commandment of the Lord. There should be no question about what you should do if this is the direction and the commandment of God. So now let's start at verse 4. Whatever is to be done is for the whole church. We're going to make a point about that in a moment. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together. When you come together in an assembly, something is to take place. You're to take action. Now notice at verse 5, two things I want you to notice at verses 5 to 8, and we're talking about the purpose of putting him away or the purpose for taking action against the sinner. Notice at verse 5, you deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So one of the purposes is we're trying to restore him and bring him back into a right relationship with God. Secondly, verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lot? You're trying to maintain the purity of the church. So we're trying to bring him back to the Lord, trying to maintain the purity of the church. Two purposes. Now beginning at verse 9, one of the ways, not the only thing to be done, but one of the things to be done 
He said, I wrote to you not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Whatever company means, you're not to do that with him. And then he goes on to explain in verse 10, I'm not talking about you can't associate with people in the world. You can, and you will. You'll have relationships with them. It may be family, maybe someone else. But if anyone is a brother, verse 9, verse 11, who is a fornicator or a covetous person, you're not even to eat with such a person. Now, that's not the only thing about company, but that's one specific about keeping company with them. We'll explain that more later. And then he ends that by saying, put away that wicked person from among you. Now, let's put a footnote here. We don't take, have the time to go to 2 Corinthians 2 at this juncture. We will later. But did that work when they took action on him? And 2 Corinthians 2 says it did. He repented. They changed and dealt with him. He repented and came back to the Lord in 2 Corinthians 2. And 2 Corinthians 7 is an effort to embrace him now. So that's the instructions from 1 Corinthians Five. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And likewise do a quick summary of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Here, first of all, is the command. And the command is to withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. He says to do this in the name of the Lord or by the authority of Christ. So here's the command. By the authority of Christ... To withdraw. The word withdraw means to pull back, to abstain, to remove. And he says to everyone who walks disorderly. He didn't say withdraw from every person who ever committed the first sin, but one who continues to make a pattern. That is, this is their continual pattern of continuing in sin. They're walking disorderly. That is, they're walking out of step, out of step, or contrary to the revelation of God. Now, what sins are under consideration in this context? Different than 1 Corinthians 5, that was fornication. There are two things mentioned at verse 11. One was laziness and the other is being a busybody. Based on a misunderstanding that the second coming of Christ was imminent. Some thought it was about to immediately take place, so they just quit work. They're not working, they've become lazy, and now they're busybodies. And Paul instructs the church by the commandment of the Lord to withdraw from those who so walk disorderly. Now, what instructions does he give in 13 to 15? Notice he says, do not grow weary in doing good. Now, that has some connection with the context. Don't grow tired of doing the right thing. It might be dealing with the brother in sin. It might be admonishing him to return. It might be working as an example before him that he might become a worker. When you're doing what is good and right and doing the will of God, don't grow weary in that. Secondly, notice at verse 14. Note that person. They are to be identified. And verse 14, do not company with them. Same terminology in 1 Corinthians 5. Now verse 15, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now we're going to explain more of that in a moment. I'm just wanting to get before you the summary of these two texts. Now, with that in mind, I want us to talk about how to treat the unfaithful. Now, we've got kind of the background of those two major passages, two primary passages. How do we treat the unfaithful is the question I've been asked. Two things we want to consider. Let's start with this, and the bulk of our study will be the second point. But here's the first thing. Who should withdraw from the unfaithful? Who should do that? And the answer is the whole church should withdraw from those who are unfaithful. Now let's go back to our text that we've already put before us. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and notice in verse 4, we noted this as we were quickly passing through that text, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are gathered together. This is something that not just the elders do, but it's something when you come together in an assembly that takes place. There's some action that takes place in the assembly of identifying and withdrawing from them. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, assuming, and I think there's more than an assumption, that this is talking about 1 Corinthians 5 and that fornicator. I say assume for this study. I think I can provide evidence of that, but I'm not going to take the time to do that and eat up our time now. But assuming that we're, I am correct in the evidence that this is the same man of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 says, the punishment that was inflicted by the majority. I don't think he's meaning the majority versus a minority, but by the group. It's the idea of the whole. The whole church was involved in taking action. In other words, withdrawing is not just something that's done by the elders or the men of the church in the absence of elders or a core element of the church. Sometimes that is what takes place. There is a core element that wants to take action, but the rest do not. Or maybe the men do, but the rest of the congregation does not. Now here's just a kind of a footnote. Since the whole church is expected to agree and to support church discipline, they are entitled to know the facts. When an eldership goes off to the side and makes a decision, we're going to withdraw from brother so-and-so, but they don't reveal the facts to the congregation as to why they're misleading the congregation. If you're expected to support that, to go along with that, you're entitled to the facts of here is what the sin is, here are the efforts that have been made about that, here is their refusal to respond, and that's why we're taking action on them now. Have every right to know and must know that. Now let's go to Galatians 6 and verse 1. Now you think of the power that has. You think of the impact of that, that if every member to, to, were to work toward restoring the area, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Suppose you were the one that became unfaithful. And rather than just hearing from the elders and about three or four others, suppose that every single member here no matter how young they are, how old they are, you heard from them and they were urging you repeatedly to make a change in your life. You think of the impact of that. Now let's go further. We're still answering the question, who should withdraw from the unfaithful? This should be backed and supported and upheld by all. Now that is assuming, let me footnote here, that the action that is taken by those who are the leaders, elders or men in the absence of elders, that they're doing that scripturally and doing the right thing. There have been cases, maybe isolated, where maybe someone was withdrawn from that there is an unfounded reason for it. There is no basis for that. Or they withdraw from someone for teaching error, but the error that was labeled as error was actually the truth that was being taught. I've known of that to happen. But we're assuming now in this context that the action taken is scriptural and that it is in harmony with the scriptures. It is expected in light of these passages to be backed and supported and upheld by all. Now, often there is an element, sometimes sizable at that, that will not support withdrawal and that renders it ineffective. Now you think about the impact of this. Just the opposite of what we were imagining a moment ago. 
Suppose that someone is like the fornicator of 1 Corinthians 5, an admitted fornicator. And suppose the elders say, we're withdrawing from them. We've pleaded and pleaded and pleaded and they have rebelled against the plea and they, we're going to take action and we're withdrawing from brother so-and-so for his fornication. Suppose there is a, a pretty good element, let's say 50% of the congregation or more, that doesn't go along with that. And they don't support that. When one doesn't support church discipline, that person does not respect the authority of Christ. Would you agree with that? Because the command of withdrawal was by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we don't do that which the Lord commanded, then that person doesn't respect the authority of Christ. When one doesn't support church discipline, that person doesn't really love the erring individual as they should. Because this is an effort to bring them back. You say, well, I love them too much. The, the point of 1 Corinthians 5 is if you do love them, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 8, by the way, ties with that. If you do love them, you'll try to bring them back. That person is not interested in keeping the church pure since that's part of the purpose. That person is not interested in maintaining the respect of the world, Acts 5 and verse 11. And that person must feel that other members don't need an example or need to be warned. Here's the point. The point is, since withdrawing is an action of the whole church, then how each member treats them is very important. Not just important how the elders may treat, but how this person and that person and this person and that person treats that individual may have everything to do with winning them back to the cause of the Lord. Now, answering that question, who should withdraw from the unfaithful? Let's move to our second question. We'll spend the rest of our time with this. How should we treat the unfaithful? What we want to do here is list nine principles, and then we're going to spend the rest of our time after that making application of these nine principles. So when, if you're maybe one of those that's wondering, I, I don't know, sh should I do this? Should I go here? Should I include this person? Should I tell them I can't? How, how, what should I say? Here are going to be nine principles against which you judge your answer. And if you ask me what you should do, I'm going to judge it against these nine principles. So let's see what those nine principles are. Here's number one. Demonstrate to them that you are trying to save them. Let's go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is where your brother sins against you and you go and tell him his fault. And he refuses to hear you. So you take with you one or two more. And then he refuses to hear them and then you tell it to the church. And he refuses to hear the church. Then you let him be unto you as a heathen and as a publican. But I want to back up to verse 15. Now, that was the, the summary of uh, 15 to 18. 15 to 17. Let's go to verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. Here's the point I want you to see. Your motive in going and telling me he's wrong is not to clobber him and tell him he's wrong, but you're trying to gain your brother. And the reason you take one or two more is to try to gain your brother. You're trying to keep it from becoming a public matter. You don't embarrass him. You're not trying to expose him before the whole church. You're trying to settle a matter and get a matter corrected and his sin to be corrected before it gets any bigger, gets any, any further well-known among people. 
You're trying to win him. You're trying to gain him. So here's the first thing. Demonstrate to them, I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to win you back to the cause of the Lord. I'm trying to get you to correct your sin. That's what I'm after. Secondly, treat him as a heathen and as a public. Now that sounds a little strange, doesn't it? But let's see what Jesus said at verse 18. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. King James will say publican. Now what does that mean? It means one that's living a wicked life. That's what a heathen was. That's what a publican was viewed as one who was a rebel against the cause of the Lord. So in other words, I don't want to do anything to show my approval of his sin. If he's a fornicator, like 1 Corinthians 5, just to take that for an example. I don't want to give any indication that I approve of his living in the sin of fornication or living in adultery. Or if it's lying, I don't want to give any indication I approve of that. I need to let him know that he is viewed in the same class as anyone who is outside the fold of God. That's all it's saying. It doesn't mean since heathens were rejected and heathens were viewed as fuel for the fire, then uh, then I need to tell him he's nothing but fuel for the fires of hell. What I'm going to tell him is he's viewed in a lost condition. I'm concerned about your soul. That's the idea of treating him as a heathen and as a publican. I'm not embracing him as a faithful brother now. He's in sin. Here's the third thing. Avoid him. Now, this ought to be familiar because we just ran through this in Bible class a few moments ago. And Romans 16 and in verse 17, this is in the context of dealing with those who may teach error, though it may even be broader than that. But look at verse 17, those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to doctrine. He says, note them, keep your eye on them, identify them, and then he says, avoid them. Stay away from them. Turn away, the American standard would say, from them. Now let's, he said, well, that's exactly what I thought. I thought I was supposed to avoid them, and when I saw them in the store, I turned and went the other way. That's not what he's talking about. So how do you know? That cannot mean I totally avoid them, not even to speak to them. You say, how do you know? Because we are to admonish him as a brother. So you don't treat him as an enemy. We're going to come back to that. But I'm to admonish him. How can I admonish him if I don't ever speak to him? How can I admonish him if I every time I see him, I turn and go the other direction? The idea of avoiding him is don't be under his influence as if per this false teacher here. This one's gone astray. He's teaching error. He's in practicing error. I'm going to turn away and no longer be under his influence. I'm going to avoid their influence. More about that in a moment. But it doesn't mean I don't have any contact at all. It means literally to turn aside, M.R. Vincent says. It's the same word found in other passages, which means to turn or turned, past tense. The American Standard says turn away from them. In other words, don't socialize. Don't, don't associate with them. Don't be under their influence. So here is one who is lying. He's fornicating. Maybe he's lazy. Maybe the busybody, as per the context. And so I, am I to continue to associate so they have influence upon me? No. I'm to avoid them. Here's number four. Closely associated and overlaps a great deal with the last. Do not associate. Now let's go to our text that we quickly noticed earlier. Your translation may render <clears throat> another word here. 
The King James and the New King James says, do not company with them. That's not a term we normally use every uh, day. Um, in our everyday language, you probably, uh, if I ask you, what did you do yesterday? Well, I was keeping company with some people. And uh, I think tomorrow what I'm going to do after work is we're going to keep company with some folks. You probably not word it that way. But that very well may be what you did yesterday and probably what you'll do tomorrow. What does it mean? Well, let's go to the text first. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you an epistle not to keep company. The footnote will say associate. 2 Thessalonians 3.14 uses the same phrase. The word company means to mix up together. You say, well, that doesn't help me any. Thayer says that's what it means. It's the idea of, we used to use the phrase if someone... Uh, was good at socializing and knew how to mix and mingle with people. They, they knew how to mix with people. They knew how to socialize. Uh, you may say, this guy over here is a good preacher. He can preach in a pulpit, but he's not a good mixer. What does it mean? He doesn't socialize well. It's the idea of socializing. It means literally to mix up together with. In other words, don't associate with them. Not even to eat with them. The text doesn't say that's what's involved. It's saying that's part of what's involved. There's more to keeping company than eating, but not even to eat with them. So it might be having a party where you're not even eating. That's socializing. That's mixing up together with. I might go shopping with someone. That's mixing up together with them. I might go play golf with them. That's mixing up together. I might go horseback riding with them. I'm mixing up together with. They come into my home. I'm mixing up. I go to their house for a meal. We're mixing up together with. We're socializing. That's the idea. The design, let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 14. The design of this is, what's, what's the purpose of that? You say that's going to hurt their feelings. It might. Maybe if it's done in the right way, they'll appreciate that. Maybe if it's done in the wrong way, they'll get all bent out of shape. But look at verse 14. The design of this is, do not company with him, I'm at the end of verse 14, that he might be ashamed. In other words, it's to bring him to shame and to repentance. That's the idea of that. Does that ever work? Yes, sir. Case in point, Corinth. It worked. It brought him back. They did exactly what they were supposed to do, and it brought him back. That's the design of not associating. More about that in a moment. Here's number five of the nine. Do not treat him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. He's not to be forgotten. In other words, when we announce one Sunday, we've given them two weeks to repent or however long, and they haven't made a change, so today is the day we're marking them and identifying we're withdrawing from them. That's not the finality of that. It often is, but that should not be the case. So they're not to be forgotten. They're not to be treated as some unwanted relative. Don't treat them like that unwanted brother-in-law that you, you say, I hate to be around they're not to be treated like they're your enemy, like they're your bitter enemy. They're not to be viewed as someone that you don't even want to see, you can't even stand. It's the idea that they are a brother that, yes, is in error, but you still love them and you care about them. That's the idea. That you still love them and you, you want to embrace them. You want to accept them, but I can't until they repent. But I'm trying to get them to repent and I'm urging them as a brother to come back home. They're part of my family. I want them to come back home. I want them to change. Number six. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Again, assuming this is the same 
case that we talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, we ought to love them. Now Paul said, as this brother comes back, he repented and he come back and he's urging them to forgive them. And he says at verse 8, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. What does that mean? They loved him before he got in this sin. They apparently, according to chapter 5, hadn't done anything, so they still loved him while he was in sin. Then when they took action, they were still to be showing love for him, and that's why they were to be withdrawing from him, is because they love him. Now that he's repented, they are to reaffirm the love they've had all along. So the point is, they should have been loving him all along. So how should I treat them? I should treat them with love. This is agape. Agape seeks the best for them, and the best thing for them is to be saved. I'm not trying to love them to the point I'm, I'm, uh, my love is only interested in their feelings. I'm interested in their salvation. It's like preaching the gospel to the lost. I might hurt their feelings, but if it brings them to salvation, so bad. I'm doing what's best for them. Same thing with withdrawing and taking action. It's agape. I treat him in the way that shows we love and we care. Now, Vine says this. Vine says about the word agape. You've seen this many times. The Christian love, whether exercised toward brethren or toward men generally, is not an impulse from feelings, and it does not always run with the natural inclinations, nor does it spend itself only upon those for whom we have some affinity, uh, for whom some affinity is discovered, love seeks the welfare of all. What did I learn from that? Maybe this brother that we've withdrawn from is a person that has rubbed you in the wrong direction, you say, I don't have these great warm feelings toward him. That's not agape. Agape is seeking the best for them. I want him to be saved. That's what agape is. Have that love and show them you love and you care. Number seven. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to them. Be kind to one another. That would apply at all times in all relationships. Be kind to one another. Now, pulpit says that that means... What does it mean to be kind? Sweet, amiable in position and disposition. Subduing all that is harsh and hasty, encouraging all that is gentle and good. Application of that. Dealing with the erring doesn't mean I have to be ugly or harsh. I can rebuke him, yet be kind. Perhaps you've been rebuked by someone and they were harsh and they were bitter and they were ugly. And you think, that didn't do me any good. But you probably have been rebuked by someone who did it with kindness and with love. And you had to take it well because that's how it was intended. And what's what this passage would tell me? How should I treat those who are erring? I treat them with kindness. So when I'm admonishing him as a brother, I'm doing so with kindness. Number eight. I'm to seek to restore him. If a man's overtaken in a fault, you with your spirit, you restore such a one. It means to bring back to its original condition. As you restore an old house, you restore an old car, you bring it back to its original condition. That is, when, when they were right with the Lord and they were diligent and they were faithful, you're trying to restore them, bring them back. That's the idea of restoring them. In other words, I do that before any and after any action of withdrawal. Before we ever withdraw, I'm trying to restore them. But what if we reach the point of withdrawal? After that, I'm still trying to restore them. 
I continue to look for and use opportunities to talk about their soul rather than avoid them. Now, quite often, there are those who think, you know what, we're not doing enough for those who have gone astray. And they're probably right. But if I want to make the charge we're not doing enough, you know what that means? I just need to be getting busy and doing that myself. And if you think you want to lead the charge that I think we're not doing enough, then get busy and do more yourself. And if we all did that, we would be doing more to reach those who are lost. Lead the charge. Lead the foe. Lead into the foe. Number nine. Here's our ninth and our last one. Demonstrate a willingness to forgive. This is important. That's implied in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother has sinned against you, you go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you gained your brother. That was my goal. In other words, I don't go to him with the idea, I, I came to you and the thing I wanted to do was, I wanted just to put the pressure on you and condemn you, and I hope you don't repent so I can keep condemning you. That's what I want to do. But I go with the intention, I do want to forgive you. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. This is after this brother has repented. And at verse 6 said the punishment is sufficient. Now on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort lest he be swallowed up in too much sorrow. Now that he comes sobbing and he's sorrowful and he's repenting, he has tears in his eyes, you need to embrace him lest he be overwhelmed with sorrow. We don't want that. And you ought to reaffirm your love toward him, verse 8. So don't rebuke someone with an air of, I'm glad I have a reason to condemn you. I've been looking for this for a long time. And I've been wanting to hit you over the head for a long time, and now I've got it, and I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm ready to cl clobber you. That's not the spirit. I'm going with the spirit I want to forgive. Now let's take those nine principles, and we'll spend the rest of our time making application. Every question we raise is going to be judged against those. I'm not saying that's an exhaustive list, but that is a biblical list. So what is, our, what is our criteria? Are we demonstrating that we're trying to save them, number one? Number two, are we still treating them as a heathen and as a publican? Am I trying to avoid them as per the text? Do I not associate with them? Do I treat them as an enemy or do I admonish them as a brother? Am I showing love and kindness? Am I seeking to restore? And am I demonstrating a willingness to forgive? So here's some questions to be answered. Does my action, and you say, you may come to me or you may come to one of the elders and say, I want to know, is this okay to do with this person who's unfaithful? All right, let's put it to the test. The question is, does my action violate any of those principles? And you say, well, yeah, because it's not really being kind. Well, then it's, it's in violation of the principle. But if my action doesn't violate any of those principles, or perhaps any other that I can find in the New Testament, then I must be treating them in harmony with the will of God. Does what I want to do harmonize with those principles? I, I, I want to go to this event, and this person is going to be there. What is the event? Are you going with them to play a game? Are you going golfing with them? Uh, you, you're going out to eat with them? You're going to the movie with them? Or are you going to a funeral and they're going to happen to be there at the funeral as well? There's a big difference. So the question is, the thing I want to do, does it harmonize with those principles? Can I do that? And at the same time, I'm not associating, I'm avoiding them, and yet I could still admonish them, I'm not treating them as an enemy. 
Am I making sure that nothing violates my conscience? Romans 14, 23. In other words, it may violate my conscience to maybe have, do something that's not in a violation with those principles, but it'd be wrong if I'm violating my conscience. Perhaps more about that later. So let's suppose some situations now. Let's, let's get where the rubber meets the road here. Let's suppose that someone becomes unfaithful and you run into them at the grocery store at the, or at the mall. And as you're coming down aisle five, you see them coming off the other end of aisle five and you caught a glimpse of them. What should you do? You say, why do you raise that? I've had brethren say to me that I saw so-and-so out at the grocery store the other day and, and I don't think they saw me, but I got off in the other aisle and I was able to avoid them. Really? That's what you were supposed to do? I didn't have to speak to them. Should you seek to avoid them? I, I don't want to even have eye contact. I don't, I don't want to even speak to them. Do you refuse to speak to them? Do you try to let them not see you? And I hope they didn't catch me. I hope I hope I was able to get... In fact, I just left the grocery quick and, and I got my groceries and I got out of there and I didn't even have to see them. Let's go back to our principles here. Now, speaking to them in the grocery store, is that socializing with them like mixing up together with? No. What did the word avoid mean? It meant don't be under their influence. You remember this, I am not to treat them as an enemy, but treat them as a brother. That is, I'm to admonish him. That might have been a good opportunity to say, you know what, we've been missing you at church. And if we could sit down and study with you sometime, I'd love to, to sit down and just have a study. I'd love to come and talk to you about your soul. And just tell them you care about them. And tell them you still love them. And do so with kindness. And ask them how their health is. And that might be an opportunity when they say, oh, we've been sick with COVID, thought we were going to die. Well, that might be a good thing. Well, then this is a good time for you to get your life right with the Lord. That's where the rubber meets the road. Now, here's another situation. Let's suppose you're invited to a social setting where one who has been withdrawn from discipline, they happen to be there. What do you do? Do I stay lest I hurt someone's feelings? Because I sure don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't want to embarrass anybody. And I'm going to stay at this social gathering and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to eat with them and I'm going to, to visit with them. We're going to play games and we're going to do all that. And I'm just not going to say anything because I don't want to, I don't want to rock the boat or, or do I leave? What do I do? Well, let's test it by the principles. I, I could stay and be showing love and I could stay and be kind. But look at number four. I'm not to mix up together with them. I think I have my answer now. I can't stay in that circumstance. I'm going to have to leave. You say, well, somebody's going, well, they may do that. My first allegiance is to the Lord. That's where my first allegiance is. I might have to leave. I might tell them later why I left. And tell them I'm interested in your soul. I'm trying to do the will of the Lord and I want you to do the same thing. Let's take another situation. Suppose one who has been disciplined shows up at a social gathering. Maybe it's a potluck. Or as they call them in the north, the pitch ends. And suppose you get there and what should be done? Should those who are in charge, that's not under the direction of the elders because that's not a work of the church, but someone's in charge of that kind of putting it together. Should those who are in charge ask them to leave? 
Or should we just ignore that because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings? What should be done? I know of at least one occasion, if not two or three occasions, that could be cited. I know of one particular where that was done, where some of the brethren said, met him at the door and told him, you're not welcome here because you are, we're not to socialize with you. They got mad, as you would expect. They go home. They call the preacher. He goes over. He, they chew him out for about two hours. And he says, well, I, I, want, to, to, I want to say something to y'all. And let, can I come back after the evening service? And they said, yes. He thought he'd get another chewing out. That evening they came to services and repented and were restored because of the action that was taken. Sometimes it works, doesn't it? What if that happened at your house? Should you welcome him in? You're having a get-together at your house and a potluck or a pitch-in and a covered dish dinner, whatever you want to call it, and here comes someone that's been withdrawn from and they come walking up to your house. What would you do? It's tested by the principles. What, what should you do? Do I violate this principle because I want to be kind to him? Or do I do what the will of the Lord is and let him know I'm trying to do the will of the Lord? Here's another situation. What if one who's been withdrawn from shows up at services? What do we do now? Believe it or not, I've been asked that question before. What do we do if, if the person we've withdrawn from shows up next Sunday at services? And my answer is, I hope he does. I hope he does. Do you ask him to leave? No. Because this is not socializing, mixing up together with. This isn't, this is an assembly of the saints. Do, 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 do I let him know he's unwanted? No. Or do I tell him, you're welcome and we're glad you came and we hope you come back? That's what we do. Because that harmonizes with these principles. I'm not socialized. He says, okay, uh, since I can come to services, would you, let's go out to lunch together. No, I'm not going to go out to lunch with you. No, I'm not going to do that. But you're welcome to be in the assembly and we hope you come back and come back tonight. Come back next week. We hope you keep coming. Come to Bible class, in fact. We hope you'll come. Another situation. What if you have business dealings with those who are disciplined? What if you go to the store and you walk in and the salesperson, the merchant happens to be someone been withdrawn from? Or the waitress comes to the table and happens to be somebody that's been withdrawn from. Or the serviceman that shows up the door to fix your refrigerator has been disciplined and on down the line. I know of Christians who said, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't let them work on my refrigerator. <laughs> really? <clears throat> is that mixing up together with? What, what, what principle is violated by letting that waitress bring you your food? She's not sitting and eating with you. She's not socializing with you. Any more than that heathen waitress last week you were letting serve you was socializing with you. She wasn't socializing with you. That fornicator that may have waited on you, that homosexual that may have waited on you, you weren't socializing with them either. Nor that merchant, nor that waitress, nor that sales clerk, nor that service person. What principle is violated by that? None. But you say, well, that bothers my conscience. Okay, now your conscience is bothered. Then don't do that. What principle is violated by that? 
Suppose the disciplined person now repents. <clears throat> as per 2 Corinthians 2. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 2. And now. Now remember they've repented. They've made public correction. They have, they've corrected. They've done everything God has required of them. And now we're with them at a social setting. Maybe it's a potluck. Maybe it's someone's house. How should I treat them? Should I try to avoid them to show disgust for the sin? By the way, he was a fornicator. How disgusting that was. And shouldn't I just kind of let him know and give him the cold shoulder to let him know, you may have repented, but I don't approve of what you did. Should I do that? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Apparently some at Corinth did that very thing. So open your Bible to 2 Corinthians 2. This is our last passage. Beginning at verse 5, so that on the contrary, but if anyone has caused grief, uh, he has not grieved me, but uh, all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Now verse 6 is where I wanted to start. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, verse 7, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest he be swallowed up in too much sorrow. Now keep your finger there, we're going to come back. What's he saying? He's repented, so embrace him and forgive him. And if you don't do that, he may be overwhelmed with sorrow and you lose him again. So Paul, what do we do? Look at verse 8. I reaffirm your love toward him. For to this end I wrote to you that you might, I might put you to the test whether you would be obedient in all things. Now to whom I forgive anything, I also, you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sake in the presence of Christ. Lest, lest, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we're not ignorant of his devices. What's the point at verse 11? This is one of the tools of Satan. And that is, here's a person who has sinned and then they repent. And then, because I think, you know what, I want to be very conservative. I want to be stand against sin. I keep beating him for that sin, even though he's repented. You're the fornicator that repented. I'll never let you forget you, you committed that sin. You were unfaithful to your wife. I don't want to associate with you. Well, I repent. I know you repented, but it's still, I'm not going to associate with people like that. That's one of the tools of Satan making me think that I'm doing the right thing when I'm doing the wrong thing. Now let's go back to our question. Now what do I do? Should I try to avoid them and show disgust for his sin? Absolutely not. Should I speak and be kind but try to distance myself? Absolutely not. Speak and be kind, but don't distance yourself. Should I give him a wholehearted embrace? Absolutely so. Because that's the point of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's the point. How should we treat the unfaithful? Well, that's my attempt at answering the question. Hopefully there's something there that helps you answer that question. My list of nine principles are not exhausted. Perhaps you're going to add two or three or four or nine more for that matter. And there very well may be nine more. But those will get us started in answering that question. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while the we stand and while we sing?